Lord, thank you so much for your holy presence. God, when we, we, when we sing that song, Lord, we don't just welcome you into this building. Lord, we welcome you into our lives. God, we welcome you into our hearts, into our anxieties. God, into our decision-making. Lord, into the way that we live. God, and this morning we ask you, Holy Spirit, would you be welcome inside of us? Lord, that we might look more and more like you every single day. Father God, I ask this morning that you would remove any barriers or hindrances that we walked in with, God, and that we would have our hearts pierced with your truth. It's in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Sponsored by Adidas. Uh, <laughs> man, I need a pair of those shoes, right? Gosh, I want some. That would be awesome. Hey, can we? Oh, cool. Um, well, this morning we are going to dive into the impossible, okay? Um, and there is impossible everywhere. Let me tell you what, sometimes I feel like Kevin Garnett in that commercial where I'm like, yeah, throw it at me, bring it on. Other days, I'm the lady at the stoplight that's like, are you kidding me? Right? Uh, and impossible is everywhere in scripture. We know that, you know, all things are possible through God. Uh, we hear that in Philippians 4 verse 13. I can do, what was that word? Everything. All things. Where's my scripture? Where's my scripture? Where's my scripture? I can do all things except for put it on the word. All right. I can do, say that word with me. Everything through Christ who gives me strength. Another verse, Hebrews 6, 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for him to lie. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may greatly be encouraged. And that might sound familiar because the very next verse, we have this hope as an anchor for our souls. And we kind of like anchors, right? And so the impossible is all around scripture. Even when you look at the story of Mary, when she finds out that she's going to give birth to Jesus, the angel of the Lord says this, for nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. Yikes. And then we continue on, and in, when asked about salvation, look at what Jesus says in Luke 18. Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Uh, welcome to week four of Puzzled by the Bible. And we have been looking at the 30,000 foot view of scripture. 
and trying to see the bigger picture of what God is up to. And this morning, for my chart people, we're going to be right here in the 12 tribes of Israel. And this morning, I want to take a serious look at the impossibles of the Bible. The impossibles of the Bible, because much like when you look at an image, you have to look at the negative space as much as the positive. You will not understand the possibilities of God without understanding the impossibilities of the Bible. I actually have a picture to illustrate this of Jesus this morning. When you look at this picture of Jesus, if we were not to look at the negative spaces, we would not understand who it was. And so this morning I want to look at Scripture with both the positive and the negative image and see the impossibles of Scripture so that we can understand how possible our God is. Amen? So the first impossible that we're going to unpack is that it is impossible for sin to be holy. It is impossible for sin to be holy. And let me tell you, this notion has crept into our culture and into our lives that sin, you know, if it's done at the right time and in the right way, and like, you know, if you're feeling good about it, sin's okay. And what we find in Scripture is that that's absolutely not true. That sin can't be made holy. You know, the very definition of sin is disobedience to God. And the very definition of holiness is obedience to God. So how can we be obediently disobedient to God? You know, that's like when your kids say, like, I love you, Mom, as they stick their hand into the, into the cookie jar that you said no, no, right? That's like using your turn signal when you pass the cop going 30 miles an hour over the speed limit. Like, being obediently disobedient, it doesn't work. That's like breaking out of jail and giving your parole officer a high five. Like, being obediently disobedient doesn't work. And I think that we find ourselves in that spot a lot, that we are obediently disobedient. Many of us, we have a story that we call a testimony about what happened when Christ came into your life. And we have, you know, B.C., before Christ. And then we have after Christ. And our lives look different, don't they? And for a lot of us, <laughs> Val says, I hope so. Uh, for a lot of us, the before Christ has some pretty uh, regretful things. You know, we have things like addiction and hurt and hang-ups that, that compose our before Christ life. And no matter what those things are, while they are kind of the negative spaces that make our stories beautiful, that sin is not good. You know, no matter what you experience, the drugs, the pornography, the doubt, the abuse, the hurt, the hopelessness, the material things, the partying, the addiction, the alcohol, the doubt, the self-consciousness, none of those things are good, are they? And see, God can redeem our lives but that sin is still not good. See, I love how Paul talks about this in Romans 6. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't we know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul says, you are dead to sin. How can you keep living in it? 
And then he says this, he says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves. Adam and Eve, they found themselves being obediently disobedient. They wanted to be like God, and in order to accomplish that, they disobeyed him. Obediently disobedient doesn't work. Now, we do this. We say we'll go to church on Sunday and we will check the box, but that will not change Saturday through Monday. That's my time. And we become obediently disobedient. And what, the first impossible of the Bible is that it is, it is impossible for the enemy, for Satan, for sin to be good. And we have to swallow that. The second impossible is that it is impossible for God to be made unholy. We read this morning in Hebrews 6.18 that it is impossible for God to lie. And let me tell you what, that's just the start. Like, holiness is not just what God does. It is who God is. And he is holy. I love how Isaiah talks about this. He says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. And that, that word right there, holy, was not used as an adjective, but as a name, whose name is holy. I can't remember the last time somebody called me holy instead of Lindsay, right? <laughs> God is holy. Sam Storms, he says, the holiness of God only secondarily refers to his moral purity, his righteousness of character. It primarily points to his infinite otherness. <laughs> to say that God is holy is to say that he is transcendentally separate. Holiness is not an attribute among many. It is not like grace or power or knowledge or wrath. Everything about God is holy. Each attribute partakes of his divine holiness. And how amazing, how awesome, how majestic, how holy is our God. And how much trouble does that leave me in? Because <laughs> when holy and unholy meet, uh, unholy consumed by holy. Uh, unholy is like the match, and the box is holy. And when my life, which last time I checked, nobody's perfect, right? Anybody in here? Because I don't, okay. Oh, Dwayne. Okay, got it. Um, <laughs> none of us are perfect, and so when we bring our unholy lives in front of a holy God, they are consumed. And that leaves us desperate, on an unholy course, trying to be in a relationship with a holy God. Have you ever been in a desperate situation before? Where it seems to just keep inching closer and closer and closer, and your people start wondering if you're going to burn yourself. I've been in a desperate situation before. Um, I don't know how you've decided that you're going to die someday, but uh, I decided at a very early age it was not going to be tornadoes, okay? Uh, I grew up in South Dakota, Tornado Alley. Uh, I remember we had Tornado Tuesday, and there were like 30 tornadoes in a 100-mile radius. And I don't like those odds, okay? And I was in the 100-mile radius. And I can distinctly remember my dad with a can of Diet Dew 
on the front lawn watching, okay? But I decided that I wasn't going to die by tornado. And that really complicates things, because my birthday's in August, and that's like tornado season in South Dakota. And I decided I want to go to the drive-in movie theater for my 12th birthday. And so my sister had the unsavory task of carting five 12-year-old girls to the drive-in movie theater. And on our way there, we hear a tornado watch. And we're like, pansies, whatever, just another Tuesday, you know? <laughs> and we keep driving there, and then we get, we get the tickets, and then all of a sudden there's a tornado warning. Hmm, eh, it's fine. Like, we're fine, we're at the drive-in, it's fine. So we get in, we're like, we'll just turn off that noisy radio and turn on the movie, okay? And so we start watching this movie, and we're having fun, and suddenly the wind picks up, so we roll up the windows, okay? <laughs> and we're fine, you know? And then the rain starts coming down. I don't know if you've ever experienced tornado. It kind of rains a little bit beforehand, and all of a sudden it gets freezing. Rain starts drizzling. We just, windshield wipers, done, okay? The, the sky starts turning green, and I just focus in on the movie. Then people start leaving. And I'm like, chickens, okay? We're fine. We paid for this. This is good. And so we're watching this movie, and I distinctly remember this. We're sitting there, and the screen itself starts to be torn apart by the wind. And my sister was like, we're done, okay? And we start racing home. Like, on a country road, we were going like 40 miles an hour over the speed limit. Wind is moving our car on the road, like hail, rain, green sky. I'm going to die. And when I think of the holiness of God and my imperfection, I see that country road. I see that I was desperate and I was on an unholy course with little help and little hope. And the good news is that we serve a God that still wants to have a way for us to be near him. And this morning, we are going to look at how the Old Testament, how the 12 tribes of Israel had a way to be near him still. The last impossible is that it is impossible to be made holy without the shedding of blood. And this is a fundamental and crucial aspect of our faith. Like, if you get the big picture of the Bible, and you still come back and say, but why all the blood and the gory stuff? Why did Jesus have to die? You're missing the entire thing. If, if your life, if you have some sort of a plan in which your life ends in heaven and it does not require the shedding of blood, you're living in a fantasy world. If you say to yourself, I'll just be good and do good things and I will get by when it's convenient and I will get to heaven without the shedding of blood, I promise you that's not going to happen. I want you to read this, Hebrews 9.22. It says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I want you to lock that in. I want you to turn to your neighbor and repeat that. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Go ahead. Without the shedding of blood, there is what? Absolutely. So this morning we are going to look at the tabernacle. 
Because we serve a God that in the Old Testament decided that he still wanted to be near his people. So good morning and welcome to the tabernacle. I have a picture for you up on the stage. Yep. Uh, This was the setup for how people could be connected to God. And so we don't have a tabernacle set up in our sanctuary because we're like people of the new covenant and stuff. Yeah, you know. But I do want to illustrate the distance that this would require. So that perimeter is about the size of a half of a city block. Imagine that. And I'm going to need a volunteer this morning. And I need specifically somebody who would be a head of household kind of person. Um, So probably not the teenage boys. Nick, you, I knew it. All right, so meet me back there by the entrance where Greg is. So in the tabernacle, there was a perimeter that was about seven feet tall that was all white fabric as the picture shows up there. There you go. And around that place was white fabric to denote that you could not enter at any place other than the entrance. And Nick, who is the head of household this morning, but I think we may know who might wear the pants. Um, (laughs) uh, Your family, even though I know they are pure and holy and wonderful, they (laughs) they have committed some sins. They're wonderful. And, <laughs> and you, as the head of household, have to atone for those sins. So what you need to do is that you need to go to your pasture, and you need to get a spotless lamb. Conveniently enough, Anchor Pasture has a, has a spotless lamb in it. So go ahead and find it. Onward, mar- marching soldier. All right, and while he's doing that, I have another picture uh, to show you. This is the entrance of the tabernacle. This is where we would be standing and where I as the priest, where, which we look slightly different, uh, <laughs> would be standing waiting for Nick who brings his spotless lamb. Now, <laughs> now one thing that you'll notice about the temple itself and the boundaries is that they're entirely made of cloth and posts. And this was beautiful because the Greek mythology And within uh, Egyptian mythology as well, all of their temples were made of huge, heavy stones, right? The Sphinx, the pyramids, the mausoleums. But our God from the beginning was about dwelling among his people. And so I would meet Nick at the entrance, and I would inspect his spotless lamb. It's pink, but we'll go with it. (laughs) And I would make sure that he didn't bring it with any deformities, that this lamb was not you know, old Bessie out to pasture with a cough, okay? And I would say, this is the perfect spotless lamb. And then I would enter with Nick. And he would make his way with me. And while he walks into the perimeter, he would feel a sense of holy awe. Because this is not something that he takes lightly. And this is not a journey he takes often. And we would make our way to the slaughtering table. And he would place his sheep onto the slaughtering table. And this, this lamb is not alive, uh, but it would have been in the tabernacle. Uh, he would have, as a shepherd to the sheep, he would need to calm it down. He would need to set it on the table, and it would need... <laughs> he would... Man, I didn't anticipate the cuteness in this moment. <laughs> um, he would need to calm it down. He would need to reassure it that it's okay, and, and that it would be all right. 
good. <laughs> and as Nick was sitting here, he then would place his hand on the head of the sheep. And for this moment, the sheep would become the substitutional, temporary, sacrificial lamb. Substitutional, meaning that God would allow for his family's guilt to be transferred onto this lamb who had nothing to do with it. It would be temporary because meaning while on earth, not in eternity, this lamb would serve as a sacrifice because without the shedding of blood, there is what? No forgiveness of sins. And it would be sacrificial because this lamb would take on the guilt. And Nick would now tell this lamb while he, while he has his hand on his head, all of the sins of their family. And after that was finished, I would take out a knife, and I would hand it to, to Nick, and he would then slice the lamb ear to ear so that the blood could run down because the shedding of blood is the payment of sin. And at this point, Nick, this is as far as you can go. So you would be welcome back to your chair. Give him a hand. <laughs> and after uh, this sheep starts to bleed and all of the, the blood is poured out of it, I, as the priest, I would make my way to a brazen altar. I have an image of what that would look like. It's basically a huge grill. Um, and I would take the blood from the lamb and I would sprinkle it on each one of those horns in the corner, signifying that there was shedding of blood for the forgiveness of our sins. I would take the lamb and I would cut it up ceremonially and I would place it on the altar and it would be consumed by holy fire. After I finished that, I would make my way up to the golden laver, which I have another image. This is where I would take and I would take my shoes off and I would wash my feet and wash my hands, signifying that I am pure and I am holy and I am able to enter into the presence of God. And then, if I was so blessed, I would enter into the tabernacle itself. And it, when I got there, there would be one room, which is the most holy, or the holy place. And inside that room, there are a few things. To the right, you will notice that there's a table of showbread, which are 12 loaves of bread to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this was important because in a lot of ways, the 12 different tribes, they would argue to try to have their own way and be above everybody else. But this was to symbolize that before God, all of them were equal. To the left, you see the lamp. This lamp would be on 24-7. It would be tended to by me, the priest, with oils and made sure that it was always running. Later on in scripture, we would find out that this lamp was much like the Holy Spirit. And then in the center, there was a box of incense. And the incense would burn from the brazen altar's fire. And then you'll notice in the back, there is a veil. A lot of times in scripture, we talk about how Jesus tore the veil. This is the veil. And if I was the high priest, and only the high priest, once a year, I would get to go behind the veil. Now before I go behind the veil, this was a pretty dangerous situation. Because if I was not holy before a holy God, I become the match and he is the box. 
And so what they would do normally is they would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle. They would tie bells to his robe so that if they couldn't hear him anymore, at least they could drag his body out. So I would enter into this place with fear and with a holy awe knowing that I am entering into the presence of God. And once I made my way into there, I would find the Ark of the Covenant. Most of you guys probably know this from maybe an Indiana Jones movie. (laughs) But the Ark of the Covenant was the Holy of Holies. It housed the rod of Aaron, the original tablets of the Ten Commandments, and a jar of manna from the wilderness. But even more important than what was in it is what's on top of it. On top of it is the mercy seat, the place where God's mercy was honored. And as the high priest, I would come into this place with the blood of the lamb, the lamb that was sacrificed selflessly for my nation, and I would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, honoring the mercy of God. This was a long, heavy, scary process by which we were able to enter into the presence of God. One of the wonderful things that I noticed about this process is that our God is a God that constantly wanted to be near us. They constantly wanted a way for us to be near him and consumed by him. So this morning I want to ask you, have you become casual with holy? Has it become a reputation or has it become a routine? Has it become anything less than the sacrificial love of God? Because there's three impossibles of the Bible. First one is that it is impossible for sin to be holy. It is impossible for God to be made unholy. And it is impossible to be made holy without the shedding of blood. And one last impossible, Hebrews 11:6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Where do you put your faith? Next week, we are going to get to the pinnacle of creation, Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at his story through the eyes of the tabernacle. And let me tell you what, I get goosebumps every time I say that sentence. Because when you look at Jesus and the sacrifice he made through the eyes of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system, it will beg the question, where do you leave your faith? And where do you trust your faith in? So this morning, we are going to close in prayer. And I would ask that you would wrestle with that question. Have you become casual with holy? Do you honor the holiness of God? That he is not... that's not just what he does, that is who he is. And has it seeped into your life? And has it changed you? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much that you are a God that always made a way. God, thank you that you are a God that always wanted to be near to us. Lord Jesus, we know that, that the punishment of sin is death. Lord, I pray that we would rest in Christ's blood, that he went before us, that he tore the veil, Lord, and that he gave us freedom and victory in the name of Christ. Lord, if we have become casual with holiness, 
Lord, I ask that you would wake us up anew. God, that you would not turn it into a reputation and a routine, Lord, but that it is something that sinks into every single aspect of our life. Lord, that we might be holy as you are holy and that we might look like you look and act how you act. God, we love you so much and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me.